My little girl went off to college, I was proud as a dad could be. She working at night, doing everything right at just a state university. She had her dreams, but she got ringed. It was a trip that was badly banned. Trying to make a stand. On 40 grand and getting ripped for 10%. Then I went and heard Bernie and he said, Maybe, just maybe, we can lower the interest rates to maybe where the bank's interest rates were when they got bailed out. And he said, Maybe, just maybe. With these billionaires, enough is enough. And I was feeling the burn. I was feeling the burn. Maybe just maybe enough already. Baby, I'm feeling the burn. All across this country, filling up the prison cells. Some of those kids, they haven't done shit, but they're living in a living hell. Bernie says time to say the real crime is how it's heavy on the black and brown. Man, he sounds like a country preacher. Try to tear that building down. I've been feeling the burn. And I've been feeling the burn. Maybe just maybe enough already. Maybe I'm feeling the burn. Talk about the family values Man, I got a family too And I worry my wife If ain't gonna have time After the baby comes due But Bernie believe in the families Man, I heard it in an interview He said it's a big day for the family Also for the baby too I've been feeling the burn I've been feeling the burn Maybe just maybe enough already. Baby, I'm feeling the burn. You can call it class warfare. Well, that sounds good to me. There's a one tenth of the one percent man to hit on a hell of a spree. We had the class to nicely ask, try walking in the people's shoes. They said no, we said it's time to go and make an offer that they can't refuse. And that was Feel the Burn by Dave Moore, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Dave Moore or search for hashtag Feel the Burn. You may need to search for both because uh, that Feel the Burn hashtag is probably pretty common there on YouTube. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. To find out more and check out some back episodes, you can go to bernie-2016.com. 
On that site, you'll find a link to my Flipboard magazine, where I have about 13,000 articles I've collected via the Flipboard app. You can find that link directly on the website um, about Bernie Sanders and his run. And you can also support this podcast by going to Patreon at patreon.com slash unrelatedthings. And any support that you provide there will directly help support this podcast. So since the last episode, there have actually been two events, two uh, primaries or or primary and caucus, I should say. Um, And Bernie Sanders very decisively won both of those. This first piece is on the most recent contest in Wyoming, and it is by Tom Cahill. It is from USUncut.com. Bernie Sanders has officially won Wyoming in a blowout, meaning the Vermont senator has now won eight of the last nine contests. At approximately 4.38 Eastern Time, CNN declared Senator Sanders the winner in a landslide with 56% of the vote to Hillary Clinton's 43. Sanders will add a majority of the Cowboy State's 14 pledged delegates to his current haul of 1,088 pledged delegates. Wyoming is just the latest of a series of wins in the West, having already won Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Washington, Hawaii, Alaska, and possibly flipping Nevada, as I talked about last episode. Assuming his county delegates come to the state Democratic Convention in May. So, delegates from Nevada, I know you're listening. Make sure, as you did show up to the county conventions, make sure that you attend in force the state convention in May in Nevada. And, uh, you know, show show the world, show the Democratic Party that uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, means business. Bernie Sanders, the organization that Bernie Sanders has built and our support for it will will deliver uh, when it counts. So turnout in Wyoming was larger than expected One photo that was posted on Twitter showed bleacher rows full of seats marked for Bernie Sanders with just a small handful of Hillary Clinton supporters in the adjacent bleachers. Another photo of a caucus at a hockey rink also showed Sanders supporters outnumbering Clinton supporters two to one. Wyoming was already seen as friendly territory to Sanders, who only campaigned once in the state. By holding his Wisconsin victory rally in Laramie, where approximately 3,000 supporters attended. While Wyoming may be the least populated state in the U.S., it's pivotal in the Democratic primary, as Wyoming Democrats have picked the eventual nominee nearly 89% of the time. So, definitely a big and important win in Wyoming. Uh, because of its low population, Wyoming does not have a very large number of delegates. But uh, chalking up that extra win is definitely important. The Wyoming caucus marks the 17th victory for Sanders in the Democratic presidential primary, while Hillary Clinton has won 18 primaries and caucuses. So that that shows uh, Bernie Sanders' recent winning streak has really helped him climb right up even 
with Hillary Clinton or slightly, slightly behind Hillary Clinton by one state in the total number of states and and regions won. Um, so really shows how close this primary is. Now, of course, the you don't uh, win the nomination by winning the, the most number of states. You win the nomination by winning the greater number of delegates or, you know, perhaps in this case, not necessarily winning the greater number, um, but uh, getting the endorsement and support and vote of the superdelegates. Um, but one way or another in a two-person race, uh, one of the two candidates should come out ahead in the pledged delegate count. And at this point, Hillary Clinton does have a pretty strong lead in pledged delegates in not including any of the superdelegates who cast absolutely no vote until the convention. So uh, still a, a long way to go, but Bernie's winning streak has really helped him build some momentum coming out of the last several contests and heading towards uh, the big upcoming state of New York. And before Wyoming, the last or previous state to vote was Wisconsin. And this piece is also from usuncut.com. This is by Amanda Gerard. Wisconsin polls close at 8 p.m. local time on Election Day, but Fox News had already called the race for the Vermont senator 60 seconds after the polls closed. It's easy to see why the race was called so early, given the overwhelming support for Sanders among all political affiliation demographics. MSNBC's Steve Kornacki tweeted results of voters who identified as very liberal, somewhat liberal, and moderate, showing that Sanders won among all three groups. The win is still a surprising one for Sanders as he was the underdog as recently as 10 days ago. A public policy poll conducted in late March predicted an 18-point win for Hillary Clinton in the Badger State. The real clear politics polling average was favorable to Clinton by seven points. As had been the trend throughout the 2016 Democratic primary, Sanders pulled out a victory as an underdog through massive get-out-the-vote operations by the campaign and its army of volunteers. Today's primary contest has marked the highest primary turnout in the Badger State since 1980. Voter turnout was particularly high for college students. At Marquette University in Milwaukee, students waited for hours to cast their ballot. And even in rural Green Bay, lines stretched out the door not long after polling places opened. Other exit polls showed voters had a strong preference for Sanders early on. NBC News exit polls showed that Sanders won among all income demographics other than voters earning more than $200,000 annually. When breaking down voting groups by age, Senator Sanders won all voters under age 49 and most convincingly among voters aged 18 to 29. As usual, Sanders demolished Clinton among self-identifying independents by 71 to 28 margin. But he also won among self-identifying Democrats 50 to 49. CNN reported that among voters who said honest, honesty and trustworthiness were the most important factors when choosing a candidate, 
82% picked Bernie Sanders. So some fantastic results coming out of the uh, last two states to vote, coming out of Wisconsin and Wyoming. And this next piece also from usuncut.com. This by Zach Cartwright. After his decisive win in Wisconsin, Bernie Sanders delivered a fiery speech in Laramie, Wyoming, destroying all of his critics' arguments. Throughout the speech, Sanders made distinctions between the message of his campaign and Hillary Clinton's as one of vision and boldness versus a continuation of the status quo. The speech eloquently described the Vermont senator's surging momentum in the second half of the Democratic primary, having won seven of the last eight contests by landslide margins and defying the expectations of pollsters and pundits. Quote, momentum is starting this campaign Momentum is starting this campaign 11 months ago with the media determining we were a fringe candidacy, 60 to 70 points behind Secretary Clinton, Sanders said. Momentum is, over the last couple of weeks, national polls have us one point up or one point down. Real change in our country's history, whether it is the trade union movement, whether it is the civil rights movement, whether it is the women's movement, whether it is the gay rights movement, they understand that real change never, ever takes place from the top on down. It always takes place from the bottom on up. Sanders said to cheers and applause. In a five-minute segment of his speech, his victory speech in Wyoming, Sanders compared his phenomenal momentum to the Fight for $15 campaign. While a $15 hour minimum wage very recently became reality in two of the most populous states in the country, Fight for 15 organizers had been consistently told since 2012 to lower expectations and settle what was Settle for what was deemed realistic. Quote, if we were here in this beautiful auditorium five years ago, not a long time from a historical perspective, and someone were to jump up and say, you know, I think the 725 minimum wage is a starvation wage and it has to be raised to $15 an hour. If someone stood up and said that five years ago, the guy next to him would say, you're nuts. 15 bucks an hour? You want to more than double the current minimum wage? You're crazy. Maybe, maybe we can get up to eight or nine bucks an hour, but 15 bucks an hour? You're dreaming. Too big. Sound familiar? You're unrealistic. It can't be done. Think smaller. But then what happened is the fast food workers went out on strike, and I was very proud to join with those workers in Washington. And they went out and told Americans, we can't live on $7 an hour. you got to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And they fought and they fought. Then Seattle, Washington, 15 bucks an hour. Los Angeles, San Francisco, 15 bucks an hour. Oregon, 15 bucks an hour. And in the last several weeks, in both California and New York, both governors signed legislation for 15 bucks an hour. My point is that, yes, we can change the status quo when we think big and when we have a vision. Uh, and uh, this particular story goes on with some more great quotes from Bernie Sanders. 
um, speech in Laramie, Wyoming, uh, just after he had won in Minnesota, or sorry, in Wisconsin. And since the last episode I recorded, probably right around that time, the Panama Papers broke. And the Panama Papers are um, a huge, huge number of uh, documents that one particular um, lawyer or legal legal group down in Panama had compiled, um, which showed a a large number of entities being founded in Panama uh, primarily for the purpose of moving funds offshore, offshore from Europe, offshore from Iceland, offshore from the U.S. uh, into Panama, where the tax situation is much, much lower. And this is Sanders' statement on the Panama Papers. This is from Bernie Sanders' We now know as a result of the Panama Papers released by an international consortium of investigative journalists that more than 214,000 entities throughout the world have been using a law firm in Panama to avoid paying taxes. At a time of massive income and wealth inequality in the United States and around the world, The wealthiest people and largest corporations must start paying their fair share of taxes. Children should not go hungry, while billionaires use offshore tax havens to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. The Panama Free Trade Agreement put a stamp of approval on Panama, a world leader when it comes to allowing the wealthy and the powerful to avoid taxes. I was opposed to the Panama Free Trade Agreement from day one. I predicted that the passage of this disastrous trade deal would make it easier, not harder, for the wealthy and large corporations to evade taxes by sheltering billions of dollars offshore. I wish I had been proven wrong about this, but it has now come to light that the extent of Panama's tax avoidance scams is even worse than I had feared. My opponent, on the other hand, opposed this trade agreement when she was running against Barack Obama for president in 2008. But when it really mattered, she quickly reversed course and helped push the Panama Free Trade Agreement through Congress as Secretary of State. The results have been a disaster. The American people are sick and tired of establishment politicians who say one thing during a campaign and do the exact opposite the day after the election. It is time for real change. As president, I will use my authority to terminate the Panama Free Trade Agreement within six months. My administration will conduct an immediate investigation into U.S. banks, corporations, and wealthy individuals who have been stashing their cash in Panama to avoid taxes. If any of them have violated U.S. law, my administration will prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. And that was Sanders' statement on the Panama Papers and the Panama Free Trade Agreement. And I think one of the one of the problems and the challenges with Bernie's pledge to uh, determine if any of these companies or individuals have violated U.S. law is very likely 
they have not violated U.S. law. The Panama Free Trade Agreement allowed and permitted these types of deals, these types of uh, ways to move your money to offshore entities in order to pay a lower tax rate. That is largely what the Panama Free Trade Deal was established to do. So to find any any people among the people and, and companies who used these laws and these rules to move that money around, to try to find any of those who actually broke the law in doing so, I'm sure there are some, but I think for the most part, the law actually enabled them to do so legally and really cut down the amount of uh, taxes that were owed, otherwise would be owed to the U.S. from actually being paid to the U.S. And another follow-up story on the Panama Papers, this one from Inquisitor.com by Nathan Francis. Bernie Sanders made a speech on the Senate floor in October of 2011 that warned that a proposed trade agreement with Panama would open the floodgates of American money flowing into offshore tax havens, a plea that ultimately fell on deaf ears as the agreement was signed by President Barack Obama later that year. That warning now appears to be prescient as a global tax evasion scandal known as the Panama Papers is sweeping through the news. A treasure trove of nearly 11.5 million documents, which NBC News reported were obtained by cryptic means, were released to media outlets around the globe. Extensive reports on the tax evasion scandal hit the news this weekend, implicating a number of powerful politicians, athletes, and celebrities who are hiding money in offshore accounts. It was just as Bernie Sanders pr predicted in 2011 in his speech to the Senate. Sanders ripped the proposed trade agreement, noting that wealthy individuals and corporations were already avoiding $100 billion in U.S. taxes by utilizing these illegal offshore tax havens. Sanders said there was no other legitimate reason to enact a trade agreement with a country as small as Panama. Quote, Panama's entire annual economic output is only $26.7 billion a year, or about two-tenths of one percent of the U.S. economy. No one can legitimately make the claim that approving this free trade agreement will significantly increase American jobs then why would we be considering standalone free trade agreement with this country? Well, it turns out that Panama is a world leader when it comes to allowing wealthy Americans and large corporations to evade U.S. taxes by stashing their cash in offshore tax havens. And the Panama Free Trade Agreement would make this bad situation much worse. So Sanders in 2011, a number of years ago, uh, when this legislation was facing the Senate and, and being voted on and eventually headed, headed to the president to sign, he uh, raised the alarm then of exactly what the Panama Papers has uh, proven has come to light. And this next piece is from HuffingtonPost.com. 
It's by Beth Adamo. It is called Grief and Bernie Sanders, a personal revelation about a political revolution. Last night I was at my grief support group meeting of the Compassionate Friends, and a light bulb suddenly went off in my brain. Anyone who has seen my Facebook feed over the last nine or ten months cannot escape my frequent and unabashed enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders as my candidate of choice for President of the United States. I don't know for sure, but I suspect that many people were surprised by my sudden outburst of political fervor. Normally, I stick to personal updates with the occasional GMO labeling or Save the Bees type of act activism. I have to admit it caught me by surprise, too. On the surface, I knew I supported Bernie because I believe that he is a rare kind of politician who has the integrity and courage to stand up for what's right, fairness, equality, and justice for all, including our planet without being swayed by big money interests or political favors, and I agree with his priorities and his positions on the issues. What's more, because Hillary Clinton is running again, the inevitable comparisons to the 2008 presidential race have caused me to become aware that I really don't remember very much about that election. I was in a fog in 2007 and 2008, having just suffered the death of my precious daughter, Natalie. Last night it dawned on me how my passion for Bernie is also deeply rooted in my grief. It's a little complicated, as grief can take some unexpected turns, but I'll do my best to explain. In 1984, I became eligible to vote in my first presidential election. I've always taken my right to vote seriously and have exercised it faithfully in every election since, presidential and otherwise. With the exception of 1988, when Jesse Jackson ran for the Democratic nomination, no candidate has ever really gotten me particularly excited. It seems like every time election year rolls around, it's the all-too-familiar choice between the lesser of two evils. Now, for the first time in my life, a candidate has come along and ignited a fire in my political being— I've almost become an activist, even going so far as to become a delegate candidate in the Rhode Island Democratic primary. Thanks to Bernie Sanders, a man who has pr a proven record of fighting for equality and justice his entire life, I am now keenly aware that the middle class has been shrinking and the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And frankly, our political system is corrupt. I started thinking about my children's future. What kind of world are we going to leave them and their kids? Bernie's idea of tuition-free public universities is sounding pretty darn good right now. So is his idea of universal single-payer health care, not to mention his deep commitment to addressing climate change. I want the world to be a better place for my children, not a dark dystopian future that we see in popular fiction like The Hunger Games, where an oligarchic capital controls the masses through fear and propaganda for its own gain. But in order to make any of these things happen, we need to get big money out of our political process. It's not democracy when anything other than the will of the people takes precedence. Yet the influence of big money and special interests has become standard operating procedure in our country. Bernie wants to fix the system and restore our democracy. 
Former President George H.W. Bush once said he wanted a, quote, kinder, gentler nation. It was a noble goal, but one that he was unable to achieve, nor has anyone else since. Why? Because the people we have elected to the highest office are not people of clear conviction and integrity that inspire others to be better human beings. Remember the line in the movie, As Good As It Gets, when Jack Nicholson says, quote, You make me want to be a better man. That's the kind of feeling I'm talking about. To inspire that in others, you must set the example. And Bernie Sanders is doing that all over the country. As a Bernie supporter, I have noticed an amazing thing starting to happen. Through the incredible immediacy and intimacy of social media, people are connecting with each other. There is a sense of community, an American community, that doesn't seem to have existed before. As I watch voting results come across in the country, I am deeply grateful to the people in those states for having the courage to vote for change, to vote for hope, to vote for integrity. I felt a glimmer of oneness with my fellow citizens I had never felt before, like we're all in this together. And that is at the core of Bernie's message. We are one people. Let's help each other. Let's do the right thing. Let's stop the me-first attitude that rears its ugly head so often in our daily lives. It takes a lot of courage to change, but I believe that Bernie is the catalyst for truly bringing about the reform we need in our government and our society. His political revolution embraces the inherent principles of democracy, which is what the United States of America is supposed to uphold. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We have strayed, and it's time to get back on track. Bernie is the only candidate who can make that happen. Our ancestors fought for the freedoms many people now take for granted. The right to vote, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the right to be accepted for who you are. I am just one voter, one American citizen, one mother who wants the best for her children, and that is why I am voting for Bernie Sanders. So, last night I was sitting in the meeting listening to people talk about their grief, and something clicked. For those of us who have lost a child, one of the most difficult things to cope with is the cruel unfairness of it. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. After nine years, I still find it impossible to accept Natalie's passing. It's just wrong. With the wrongness of losing a child comes a feeling of powerlessness. There was nothing we could do to save her, and hope dies, too. When Bernie Sanders announced his candidacy, on a level buried very deep inside, I saw an opportunity for hope, and I was compelled to do something in a way I never had been before in my life. And so political activist Beth emerged. It came from a deep need, an all-consuming craving for there, for there to be some fairness, some justice in the world. Natalie is gone. My only hope for her now is that her memory will live on among those who knew her and those who may be touched by her life. But I can still hope for a better future for my other two children, for my fellow citizens, and for our planet. I know it's an uphill battle, but does that mean we shouldn't try? When I shared my revelation with my husband after the meeting, I was surprised and touched that he seemed to have understood my motivation all along. 
Last summer, he had expressed concern over me getting too invested in Bernie because he saw from the beginning how it was connected to Natalie and he didn't want to see me get crushed. I am humbled by his insight. Sometimes those who love us know us better than we know ourselves. It just took me longer to figure it out. I am grateful to him for that and so much more. And I am pleased to report that he has joined me in feeling the burn. And once again, that was by Beth Adamo. And that was from the Huffington Post.com. And this next story was just uh, posted today. This is from nydailynews.com. And this is a piece by Sean King. Sean King is a strong supporter of Bernie Sanders. Uh, Sean King also has been a... uh, I hesitate as I try to describe this because I'm not... Uh, close enough to be precise enough in my language. But Sean King, I will say, is a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, as as I said, I, I don't know his connections well enough to be any more precise in my language than that. But I know that he has written quite a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement and about social justice and about Bernie Sanders. So this is a piece that he published today in the New York Daily News. Let me set some ground rules here and address some conspiracy theories before I get started. One, I love the New York Daily News. I'm not leaving. Writers at papers disagree peacefully every single day. Two, I love our editorial board. They are a smart, seasoned group of journalists. Three, I have been given freedom from the day I joined this staff to write whatever the hell I want to write without censorship. If you can get past those things, let's dig in. I'm disappointed. I disagree with virtually every single word written by our editorial board on why they are supporting Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. It's amazing, shocking even, on how differently we see this race and the candidates in it. I'm not on the editorial board of the Daily News. They don't consult me. When I got on Twitter Tuesday evening and saw that they had just endorsed Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, I learned alongside everybody else who saw the tweet. When I clicked the link and read the endorsement, it was my first time seeing their rationale. I have deliberately avoided reading any other critiques or rebuttals so I could thoroughly pen my own response without outside influence. First off, without impugning the character of my colleagues, I think age is a real factor here. In fact, I think the single biggest difference in how most people view view Sanders isn't race or sex or ethnicity, or even political history, but age. People under 40 like Sanders a whole lot. People under 30 absolutely love him. Democratic voters under 25 hardly recognize another candidate even exists. Our editorial board, like 99% of editorial boards across America, skews older. 
I'm not being an ageist here. The facts are that younger voters see this race, see the candidates, and see America drastically different than their parents and grandparents. This is not to discount the endorsement of Clinton on the merit of it being written by old people, but it is essential that we recognize just how likely it would be, demographically speaking, for an older board of professionals to pen an endorsement of Clinton over Sanders. I am told, and I believe it, that a few members of the editorial board gave Sanders serious consideration before they made this decision. That said, I believe our editorial board offered what amounts to a thoughtful, if perhaps perplexing, endorsement of Clinton with a scathing, sometimes backhanded, critique of Sanders. Sanders could have written the first 12 paragraphs of the news endorsement himself. As it railed on about how the middle class has been squeezed the past few decades, how typical household incomes have actually dropped over $4,000 since 1999, how far too many jobs offer low wages, bad benefits, and part-time hours, and how the billionaire class now owns more American wealth than ever, I had no idea how the editorial board intended to contort itself to pivot from the stump speech of Sanders to an actual endorsement of Clinton. I'm still miffed. No candidate is more dedicated to helping working class families grow stronger than Sanders. Heck, the Working Families Party, a powerhouse in New York, endorsed Sanders for this very reason. They said, quote, we want to live in a nation that allows all people to live a decent life, no matter what is in their parents' bank account or who is in their family tree. But the super-rich have used their economic muscle to buy political muscle, and unless you're one of them, what you think government should do basically doesn't count. That's why we're standing with Bernie Sanders to build the political revolution and make our nation into one where every family can thrive. While the Justice Department recently announced a $5 billion settlement by Goldman Sachs for their fraudulent practices, Hillary Clinton was paid $675,000 to give three speeches to them and refuses to release the transcripts from those events. From Goldman Sachs alone, she earned twice as much as Bernie's entire net worth. Still, that's chump change for Clinton. In just 12 speeches delivered to big banks and Wall Street investment firms, Clinton made $2,935,000 from 2013 to 2015. That's more than the average American makes in their lifetime. An average college graduate is expected to earn $2.4 million in the United States. An average high school graduate, just $770,000. The very executives that have paid Clinton over and over and over again to come speak to them, guess what has happened to their income since 1999? It doubled while everyone else's tanked. The Clintons have actually earned an astounding $153 million in speaking fees since leaving office. Do your own math on how much their income has increased since 1999. Asked about the millions Clinton has made from corporations, Sheila Crumholz, executive director of the Center for Responsive Politics, told Time Magazine, quote, It's big money. They're spending it because they have far greater sums riding on those decisions that they're trying to shape. 
Corporations or associations must justifiably make these investments because everyone knew for many years that Clinton would always remain a power broker. Every man or woman on the street thought Hillary Clinton would run again. Are we to ignore all of this? How? Why? Are we expected to somehow believe that these corporations and banks and insurance companies spent tens of millions of dollars because they loved the quality of her oratory? Did Goldman Sachs literally have her speak again and again and yet again because she was hitting home runs each and every time or because they wanted to curry favor with who they believed would be the next president? When Elizabeth Warren, speaking to Bill Moyers, told the painful tale of two Clintons, one an unbought and unbossed first lady, and another influenced by Wall Street lobbyists in the Senate. Are we expected that she's now back to her 1996 self? Because if so, it was also in 1996 when a 49-year-old Hillary Clinton infamously spoke of young black children as super predators while serving as the first lady. And it was just last week when her husband defended the term, defended his crime bill, and defended welfare reform. Our editorial board said, quote, Clinton is unsparingly clear-eyed about what's wrong with America while holding firm to what's right with America. I've come to the exact opposite conclusion about her judgment on what's right and what's wrong for America. The Iraq War, which not only cost thousands of lives, but cost our nation over $1 trillion. To give that some context, Sanders' plan to provide college for all cost $75 billion per year. For the cost of disastrous and foolhardy Iraq War, which Sanders opposed and Hillary supported, every American could attend college for the next 13 years. For the cost of the Iraq War, every American could have 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave for the next 30 years. That's amazing. Bad judgment is expensive. Any day of the week, I would trade K-16 through education and paid family and medical leave for the Iraq War. Wouldn't you? We have the will to make these judgment calls, but politicians say Sanders, and by default all of us who support him, has amazing ideas with absolutely no idea how he's going to make them work. This isn't just disrespectful, it's ridiculous. Our editorial board states that when Sanders was interviewed by them and, quote, subjected to meaningful scrutiny for the first time, the senator from Vermont proved utterly unprepared for the Oval Office. Where I'm from in Kentucky... We call that hogwash. Bill Clinton's labor secretary, Robert Reich, who has known Clinton since she was a college student, but, but chose to endorse Sanders, agrees. Speaking about his now infamous interview with our editorial board, Reich, a beloved economist, said, quote, Bernie was absolutely correct when he said that the president has the authority to break up the big banks under Dodd-Frank. He's repeatedly specified exactly how he'd use that Dodd-Frank authority to do so. His critics are confusing the Dodd-Frank Act with the Federal Reserve. Whether the Fed has the authority on its own to break up the biggest banks is irrelevant. Clearly, Sanders has the Democratic establishment worried enough to try to twist his words into pretzels. This, after all, was where both the Clinton campaign and now the Daily News editorial board most often claim Sanders dropped the ball. Except he didn't. 
The notion that a man who has actively and passionately served for over three decades in public office was somehow stumped by some softballs thrown by our editorial board defies all logic. Sanders speaks in shorthand, particularly in many interviews, but he was actually thorough in his responses to most questions posed to him by the board. When I first read the transcript, I actually loved what I saw. When I read it again, I still loved it. Same thing when I read it the third time. Even still, if Sanders' interview with the editorial board was akin to his standardized test score for a college application, choosing to value a small section of his interview over his entire body of work, his life story, his recommendations, just doesn't make sense to me. If Tom Hanks flubs an interview about a movie role, in what world would that outshine his entire body of work? If Steph Curry was a free agent and didn't perfectly nail an interview for a team, at what point is that team making a huge mistake to value the interview over what they have actually seen on the court throughout his career? We know Tom Hanks. We know Steph Curry. We know Sanders. He's as consistent as it gets. Of course, when you ask a presidential candidate in an interview scheduled to last just 45 minutes to explain how banks that are declared too big to fail will be broken up, he's not going to actually give a multi-hour breakdown of the blueprints, but a sense of his guiding principles on the matter before pivoting to the next question. Not only that, but Bernie showed maturity, not ignorance, when admitting who he would confer with and what he felt he needed to study more before offering concrete thoughts on some questions. In the end, I agree with one key point from our editorial board. They say in their conclusion that, quote, Clinton's proposals are shaped for the world in which we live, not the world in which we might wish to live. I agree. Voters in the 15 states Sanders has won, including seven states in a row, also agree. Sanders is not a status quo candidate. He's not proposing to moderately shift our nation an inch to the left here or an inch to the right there, as Clinton is doing. This, perhaps more than any other statement, perfectly encapsulates the fundamental difference between the two candidates and perfectly explains the enormous gap in support with younger voters for Sanders over Clinton. We still dream that this country can shift, even radically so, in new and better directions that benefit all of America. Maybe it is because we have more time in front of us than behind us. Maybe it is because every bit of hope has not yet been squeezed out of us. Maybe it is because we actually trust that Sanders says what he means and means what he says in an age where politicians will say anything to get elected, that we are inspired by him. Maybe we see the images and videos of a young Sanders being arrested for protesting inequity in the 60s and hear him with the same zeal a full 50 years later and that we, that we also despise injustice, are inspired. I'll ask our editorial board this question. Is your premise that the Republicans in Congress love Hillary and are going to be eager to work with her to get her smaller ideas accomplished? I'm not buying it. Sanders actually has a record of getting stuff done with Republicans in power. According to the nonpartisan PolitiFact, quote, from 1995 to 2007, 
when Republicans controlled Congress, Sanders passed the most roll call amendments out of anyone in the House of Representatives. I'd rather have an energized and experienced candidate with bigger, more ambitious ideas backed by the youth of this country. Even if Sanders' ideas get crunched down, we end up with something beautiful in the end. If Clinton's smaller, quote, more realistic ideas get crunched down, then we get what we already have. Lastly, I truly believe, as do most polls, that Sanders is a better, more competitive candidate up against the eventual Republican nominee, be it Trump, Cruz, Kasich, or Paul Ryan. This isn't pie-in-the-sky optimism or bad polling. Young people would vote for Sanders en masse, yes, but perhaps the most crucial demographic of them all is the fastest-growing political group in the country, independence. Sanders is the longest-serving independent in the history of Congress. He energizes new voters who have a deep distrust of the system. They will not support establishment candidates, but will help propel him to victory in the general election. Day by day, America is growing more progressive and more independent. Sanders exists as a series of presidential as a serious presidential candidate with victories from coast to coast for this very reason. His fundraising, without the help of a single super PAC, is breaking records. The energy of his base is filling arenas, not just all over the country, but across New York. Now, just 200 pledged delegates behind Clinton, with 1,500 pledged delegates remaining, Sanders can win New York and the nomination and become the 45th president of the United States. And that was Sean King's piece from today's New York Daily News responding to that paper's endorsement of Hillary Clinton. And I think he had a lot of really fantastic points that he made in that piece. I think if I had any criticisms of his piece, the piece that I just read by Sean King, it's that he played the youth card a little too heavily. I don't think that he was necessarily wrong with how he characterized the strength and support from the youth, but uh, kind of left me out. You know, I'm, I'm no longer the youth. I haven't been the youth in uh, too many years. You know, I'm 48 years old, and uh, there are plenty of us, uh, I'd call it middle-aged, but I have very little hope that I'm going to live to be uh, 98, 99 years old, so I'm, I'm a bit beyond middle-aged. Um, you know, there are many, many of us of all ages that support Bernie Sanders, Um and uh but it it's exciting and provides me with extra hope that uh the support of Sanders and his policies and his ideas is so huge among the youth. I think that uh you know as they age and as they some of them who haven't haven't yet felt the brunt of trying to make their living in this society, um, you know, move into that role. 
I hope they can uh, hang on to their ideals as some of us have, and it's not always an easy, easy journey. I would say for the last 20 years, I have been more or less apathetic um, about politics, um, not voting consistently, um, you know, occasionally getting excited by a candidate. But but as an, the earlier piece wrote about Jesse Jackson, that was probably the last uh, candidate in the Democratic Party that had had a fair chance that I was very excited about. There have been a couple others since that time. Uh, Dennis Kucinich, I think, um, policy-wise, was a very good candidate in in my opinion. But unfortunately, you know, he, he went nowhere in his race and his run for the presidency. There have been few, few candidates uh, that have come forward through the Democratic ranks that um, policy-wise have gotten me excited at all. And Bernie's turned that around. I mean, I've, I did not vote in the last presidential election, and I did not vote in the one before that. In uh, in Barack Obama's uh, you know first time that he won and got elected to president, um, he didn't inspire me uh, enough to make me take any action and, and go out and vote. He was too too centrist for my tastes and for my politics. Um, so I I lived in I. I live now in New Jersey. I lived in Vermont for six or seven years. Bernie Sanders was my senator. I had the opportunity to vote for Bernie Sanders as my senator. I didn't vote. I Had I thought that the race Bernie Sanders was in at that time was competitive and that my vote would be very important for him to be successful, I would have voted. But the support that Bernie has had for a very long time in, in uh, Vermont made me not terribly concerned about that. Um, I I have not paid a lot of attention to politics other than to be mildly annoyed on a regular basis and occasionally very annoyed with uh, what's going on. But without any candidates out there that uh, inspired me to take part and do anything about it, I I sat back and and you know lived my life and uh didn't take part in the politics so i'm excited that i've you know got this kind of reawakening um recently when bernie sanders decided to run and have you know been more interested in what's going on and been more focused on what's happening and who who's out there doing it and uh <clears throat> Let's see what what can I do to support Bernie Sanders, and that's why I am talking to you now. So, um, I think this is a great piece by Sean King, and I think the same things that inspire all of those young people about Bernie Sanders inspire all of the rest of us of all ages who uh, support Bernie Sanders. And next up is 
from usuncut.com. This is by Nathan Wellman. Initial reports suggest that hundreds of protesters are being arrested outside Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. right now for participating in a peaceful demonstration against corporate money in politics. With over 53,000 tweets, hashtag Democracy Spring is trending on Twitter and Facebook, and some of the protest is still unfolding. However, some noted that even with a massive outcry, mainstream media coverage was nowhere to be found. The protesters arrived at the U.S. Capitol building in D.C. after marching 150 miles from the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia over the course of a week as part of the Democracy Spring campaign. Upon arriving, they engaged in a peaceful sit-in outside the Capitol with the goal of staying there for another week. The Democracy Spring website says that the campaign's goal is to, quote, demand a Congress that will take immediate action to end the corruption of big money in our politics and ensure free and fair elections in which every American has an equal voice. Furthermore, their proposals include support of the Government by the People Act and Fair Elections Now Act, the Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2015 and Voter Empowerment Act of 2015, and the Democracy for All Amendment. The website reports that over 3,600 people have pledged to take part in this act of civic disobedience, though a final number has yet to be confirmed. Police were quickly called to the scene and they began arresting people not even an hour after the protests began. Senk Uyghur, I have no idea if I pronounced his name correctly, of the Young Turks, took part in the sit-in, saying, quote, They can arrest us today and they can arrest us tomorrow, but we're going to keep coming back. They can't arrest the whole country. Despite the arrest, the mood of the sit-in remains peaceful and even celebratory. Or celebratory. Police reported that the protest has resulted in a record number of arrests at the U.S. Capitol. Meanwhile, activists around the country have taken to Twitter to show their support. The sit-in is scheduled to last until April 18th, with more people planning to bus in throughout the course of the week. So it's safe to say that more arrests are on the way, if the police can figure out where to put everybody. And in fact, the police have their hands full there with so many arrests Um, for the civil disobedience taking place right now in Washington, D.C. to fight to get money out of politics and to support the rights of all Americans, uh, the ability and uh, the the, um, voting rights that they're entitled to. Um, The police have had to slow down the pace of their arrests as they fill up the uh, holding areas um, with the arrestees and have to process them. Um, it, it has been a, as far as I know and have, have been paying attention to it, it has been a uh, a peaceful process uh, from both sides. Um So uh, kudos to everybody who has been taking part in Democracy Spring. Um, You can see what's going on in Democracy Spring. Of course, you 
can't see it in the corporate media because they're paying absolutely no attention to it. Uh, there were some of the chants that the protesters were chanting were, you know, where is CNN? Where is CNN? Um, because the corporate media doesn't care. Corporate media doesn't care when a large number of people rise up and stand up and put their themselves on the line to make a point and to really push for what they believe the country should stand for and how our government should work for us. It is one of those grassroots uh, efforts that Sanders talked about, um, the, the type of effort that brought about some of our civil rights laws, the type of effort that brought about women's suffrage and women's rights laws, the type of effort that brought about um, gay rights, uh, repeals of laws that were anti-gay, and the support of, um, of uh, marriage equality. It is the type of protest, the type of direct action that uh, the Fight for 15 um, organizers and participants um, undertook to push governments in the right direction and supporting a $15 an hour minimum wage. It is a grassroots movement ongoing right now that uh, is the people standing up for what they believe in. And next piece is by Kwame Rose. It is from the HuffingtonPost.com. It's called Why I'm Now Voting for Bernie Sanders. We're living in unprecedented times. The fallacies of America are now being told by those who have been most affected. As someone who will be a first-time voter in this election, I, along with many other people throughout this country, am fed up with politicians and not interested in engaging in a political process that is rigged. Just this week, we saw how the Clintons continue to demonstrate that they are unwilling to listen to the concerns of young black voters when former President Bill Clinton shouted over protesters at a campaign rally. Black people in this country are not looking for a savior. We are looking for people that will stand with us, fight with us, and shackle themselves to us in the midst of it all. A person's actions speak highly about one's character. For more than 40 years, Senator Bernie Sanders has been on the front lines of direct action against the very institution he, is a white, he as a white man could have benefited from. A few weeks ago, I penned an article expressing why I wasn't inspired to vote for Senator Sanders at that time. I felt that during his visit here to Baltimore, there was a missed opportunity to engage many of us who traditionally have not been part of the process. Senator Sanders could have taken the route of ignoring this call for accountability. Instead, he and his team have worked to establish a relationship with young people here on the ground in Baltimore. From weekly phone calls to consistent efforts to fill the void between us and our representatives and those of us who have previously been unengaged, it's actions like these which prove that Senator Sanders is still willing to stand with those of us who have never had a voice in politics. I believe Bernie Sanders is the only candidate that truly believes a better tomorrow exists for the millions of unengaged young people fighting to create a prosperous future. 
We cannot afford to go backwards. Not only is Senator Sanders fighting for the issues that matter most to the least among us, but he but he did so yesterday, and I believe he'll wake up tomorrow with his mind set on carrying this fight forward. I honestly can't say that about any other candidate for president. Bernie's been fighting for change for longer than I've been alive, and he has remained dedicated and determined to put an end to racial oppression and color line inequity, just as he was when he was arrested while shackled to the causes of black people in the 60s. His justice reform proposal mirrors the aims of the Black Lives Matter movement, and his economic policy positions will benefit distressed communities in ways that could finally begin to reverse the damage caused by the so-called war on drugs. Pay equity of $15 minimum wage, saving families on average $5,000 per year in healthcare costs, investing a trillion dollars in infrastructure, are proposals that invest in rebuilding rundown elementary schools on the west side of Baltimore and reopening countless others on the south side of Chicago. These priorities are fundamentally good for the hood. Bernie Sanders is unapologetic about that. Bernie Sanders is a man who is true to his morals and his values, a sitting U.S. senator who has refused to be part of the political machine. Bernie Sanders is a seasoned revolutionary, willing to amplify the voices of those of us who have for too long been neglected and unengaged. I am proud to vote for Bernie Sanders, a man with the heart, the will, and the courage to engage. And that was by Kwame Rose once again, uh, posted in the Huffington Post. So the primary in New York is coming up on the 19th. This is going to be a tough primary for Bernie Sanders. There's a lot of things about the New York primary that make it uh, unfriendly to a candidate like Bernie Sanders. Um, For one, as I've spoken of many times, the deadline to have changed your party affiliation from Republican to Democrat was back in October. I think it was October 9th, I heard recently, or I I was reminded recently. Um, So that was the first big step. The deadline, if you uh, want to vote in the Democratic primary and had never um, never registered before, has now passed as well. Uh, the primary in New York is a closed primary, which means you only can vote in the Democratic primary if you are a Democrat and you cannot uh, register on Election Day as you can in some other states. So... Independents who haven't hadn't previously changed their party affiliation to Democrat have uh, don't have the opportunity in New York to vote for Bernie Sanders. So that cuts out a lot of the Sanders supporters. If if people weren't uh, activated and uh, excited enough way back in the fall when Bernie Sanders was really just starting to get get things going um, and uh, didn't didn't register to vote in time, they will not be allowed to vote um, for Bernie Sanders in New York. So that that's going to pose a challenge. Um, you know, on, on a side note, the same thing is happening as far as that goes on the Republican side. And uh, two of Donald Trump's children 
did not change their party affiliation uh, in time or beat the deadline there, and they will not be allowed to vote in the Republican primary for their father. So, hooray, that's two less votes for Donald Trump. And the other thing uh, about New York is that's that's the state that elected Hillary Clinton to be their senator, I believe, twice. I believe she got through uh, through her first term and was reelected to a second term when Barack Obama uh, chose her to become secretary of state. Um, so Hillary Clinton has deep, deep ties to New York, where she has, it's her adopted home state. She was a senator, elected senator from New York. She has strong, strong ties to the whole political establishment in New York. Um, So New York's going to be tough for Bernie Sanders. I still think Bernie has an opportunity to win in New York, uh, but all of those things stacked against him will make it a big, big challenge. So everybody out there that knows somebody in New York and everybody out there that doesn't know somebody in New York, do what you can to reach out, change one mind, change, change one person's mind, get one person who was uncertain of where they're going to vote to uh, vote for Bernie Sanders. And, um, you know, the one thing that Bernie Sanders does have is a large, enthusiastic uh, base of support. And we can really make things happen, as we have shown in, you know, the last uh, nine states or areas that voted where Bernie Sanders has won by a landslide in each of those. So do what you can to make it happen in New York. So this last piece that I have tonight, um, I saw on Twitter and the author of it uh, posted it to his timeline. The author is Boots Riley. Boots Riley is a musical artist. He's a, a rapper. He is part of a band called The Coup. Uh, he's a brilliant writer of music, and he's also written a screenplay that he's turned turning into a movie uh, that is in production now. Um, he is. I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily label him uh, in a way that he might not stand up and say himself, but, uh, he, I will risk doing so. He is a socialist, um, in, in a more pure sense of that term than, than Bernie Sanders version of democratic socialism. Um, he is an outspoken critic of capitalism and our society and, I I just think he's he's a, a brilliant voice, um, I would say for our generation, but for for any generation that's alive today that can hear him, I think he's a, a brilliant voice, and more people should hear him and and uh, take to heart what he stands for and what he has to say. I don't see a lot of 
items written by Boots Riley that end up in <clears throat> the corporate media for, I think, somewhat obvious reasons. His <clears throat> What he stands for is not exactly in alignment, and I would say maybe is often 180 degrees in, in non-alignment with what the uh, corporate media stands for. But this particular piece, um, which was written and posted online originally, was also uh, picked up by the, I want to say it was the Guardian, but actually the version that I'm looking at right now does not say which paper this appeared in. Let me scroll down and see if it shows up down at the bottom here. Yeah, it was The Guardian. So The Guardian, a, a UK newspaper, which uh, has a much broader voice, I think, than most of the corporate media, if not all of the corporate media in the United States. You have to go to the uh, the people's media in the United States to, to find voices that are similar to some of what The Guardian uh, will publish. But I thought this was a brilliant uh, rebuttal of, I think, what is the uh, common theme or, or common belief uh, that's put forth by our corporate media. So this is by Boots Riley. It is called Black Culture Isn't the Problem. Systemic Inequality Is. And actually, let me look up what uh, Boots Riley had to say about the title because he did uh, make it clear that he would have uh, not used that title on this piece. So give me a second here to find what he wrote specifically about the title. And it's coming eventually, if my connection was a little quicker, then there wouldn't be this delay. All right, so Boots Riley, when he uh, tweeted out um, a link to this story, wrote that his preferred title for the piece is, There is no black crime problem. Stats prove it. The idea that it is black folks and our supposedly immoral and savage culture that creates our disproportionate rates of poverty and imprisonment is everywhere. Cop shows, news media, movies set in black neighborhoods, and high school social studies classes have all perpetrated this misconception. And some are now using this old false idea to disparage Black Lives Matter saying that the real problem facing black communities isn't police violence, racist oppression, or economic exploitation, but, quote, black-on-black -black crime. We hear this all over the place, from news columnists to Ray Lewis to Rudy Giuliani, and most recently reiterated by Bill Clinton. It's asinine. This argument that modern civil rights movements like Black Lives Matter should stop talking about actual problems in favor of apocryphal ones. 
During the Civil Rights Movement, there was much more homicide in the black community than there is now. Black-on-black crime is shrinking. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention statistics show that from 1950 to 2013, the percentage of black men who became homicide victims dropped by a third, and for black women, the percentage was cut in half. Though murder rates were higher in the 1960s, no one in their right mind today would argue that those organizers should have put the march on Selma or the Montgomery bus boycott on the back burner to focus on -on black-on-black violence back then. We shouldn't pressure today's activists to do this either. Yet the myth of black-on-black crime has enormous staying power. It's no surprise that this kind of argument is so common among the likes of conservative media, Donald Trump, and the police. But false hysteria about black-on-black crime has also been absorbed by liberals and black community leaders. Even Spike Lee took this stance in his recent film, Chirac, showing a Chicago minister telling a huge crowd that the fight against black-on-black violence is, quote, our Selma. We've been duped when black neighborhoods are compared with white neighborhoods of a similar income level. You see similar rates of crime. The fallacy of comparing white neighborhoods with black neighborhoods is in lumping together wealthy and upper middle class neighborhoods, categories that not many black folks are in, with middle and low income ones. But that's not how the world works. Poor white people in Memphis aren't kicking it with rich ones in Bel Air. Explaining crime and poverty as a result of black behavioral choice further disguises ways that both are caused by capitalism. Recasting systemic inequality as cultural choice suggests that black people aren't determined enough, that it's their own fault they remain in poverty. Out of economic deprivation comes violence, not because poor people have bad attitudes or cultural deficiencies, but because without a real economic safety net, the machinations required for survival can involve illegal business. And whereas legal business has the police to physically enforce the laws that govern it, disputes and arguments in illegal businesses are settled and enforced by the practitioners themselves. The argument also regurgitates the same old disproven beliefs about crime, saying that stricter gun laws would decrease violence. Calls for gun legislation are actually calls for stricter policing and more police violence in black communities. Gun control laws give police more powers to arrest, and we know that these policies will be racist in their implementation. Imagine stop and frisk in white neighborhoods. It ain't going to happen. The rate of weapons arrests is multiple times higher in the black community, even though blacks are half as likely as whites to own a gun. The myth of black crime as cover for racist violence is nothing new. In 1906, Atlanta newspapers created a fake, quote, Negro crime wave, which culminated in the state militia and county police going door to door in a raid of every single black home in order to confiscate guns. People were beaten and murdered along the way. In the following decades, similar media created, <clears throat> created quote, Negro crime waves in Washington, New York, and other cities led to the repression of black communities that follows this kind of story.
The only thing that will stop murders in black neighborhoods or in any neighborhoods is a higher standard of living, not laws that will be enforced through a racist lens. Economic improvement will happen only through a mass radical movement to create a system in which the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor. The next time you hear someone try to shame black community activists and reinforce the myth of the black criminal, remember that it's an old story and a fake story, and it's time for us to move on. And that was, once again, a piece written by Boots Riley that was in The Guardian, uh, as well as, I think, some other other places online. And it uh, opened my eyes uh, beyond the narrative that is written by the corporate media and the politicians and the pundits. Um, and, it, and it brings me right back to Bernie's focus on the issues and Bernie's focus on the economic realities and his belief that in many ways, not in every way, in many ways, building a more just economic system will go a great deal of the distance in alleviating some of the uh, negative impacts of our our terrible economic policies um, in this country and how they impact the poor. So uh, I think that was a, a, a fantastic piece. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can also check out my website with back episodes at Bernie-2016.com. And... It would be great if you enjoyed this podcast, if you went on to iTunes and gave this podcast a rating, um, you know, the higher the ratings, the more people that will be able to, to find this podcast and notice it and join in and uh, become a listener. So please do so. So uh, to follow up on that piece by Boots Riley that I just covered, um, the piece that we'll go out with tonight is called Underdog by Boots Riley. You can find that on YouTube. Search for Boots Riley or search for Underdog. Uh, you can also find that um, published. I heard this this piece the first time I very long time ago. Uh, I believe it was on a compilation album um, put out by Adbusters magazine, which had a, a whole host of different artists, um, you know, that uh, had this strong, consistent point of view. Um, so here it is underdog by boots. Riley. Thanks for listening. This is for my focus. Um, check one, two, 
This is for my focus. Never live like a hog. Me and you, toe to toe. I got love for the underdog. This is for my focus who got bills overdue. This is for my focus. Um, check one, two. This is for my focus. Never live like a hog. Me and you, toe to toe. I got love for the underdog. I raise this glass for the ones who die meaninglessly, and the newborns who get fed intravenously. Somebody's mama caught a job in a welfare fraud case. When she breathes, she swear it feel like plastic wrap around her face. Lights turned off. This the third month the rent is late. Thoughts of being homeless, crying till you hyperventilate. Despair permeates the air and sets in your hair. The kids play with that one toy they learned how to share. Coming home don't ever seem to be a celebration. Bills they piled up on the coffee table like they decoration. Heaping spoons of peanut butter, big ass glass of water, make the hunger subside. Save the real food for your daughter. You feel like swinging haymakers at a moving truck. You feel like laughing, so it seems like you don't give a fuck. You feel like getting so high you smoke the whole damn crop. You feel like crying, but you think that you might never stop. Homes with no heat stiffing your joints like arthritis. If this was fiction, it'd be easier to write this. Some folks try to front like they so above you. They tear this motherfucker up if they really loved you. This is for my folkers who got bills overdue. This is for my folkers, um, check one, two. This is for my folkers, never live like a hog. Me and you, toe to toe, I got love for the underdog. There's certain tricks of the trade to try to halt your defeat. Like taking Tupperware to an all-you-can-eat. Returning used shit for new saying you lost your receipt. And writing four-figure checks when your accounts deplete. Then all your problems pile up about a mile up. Thinking about a partner you could dial up to help you out this vile stuff. Whole family sleeping on a futon while you clipping coupons. Eating salad, trying to get full off the croutons. Cross town, the situation is identical. Somebody getting strangled by the system and its tentacles. Misconceptions raise questions to be solved. A lot of D-boys is broke. A lot of homeless got jobs. You can make eight bones an hour till you pass out and still be ass out. Most pyramid schemes don't let you cash out. They say this generation made the harmony break. But crime rise consistent with the poverty rate. You take the workers from jobs, you gon' have murders and mobs. A gang of preachers screaming sermons over murmurs and sobs, saying, pray for a change from the Lord above you. They tear this motherfucker up if they really loved you. This is for my folkers who got bills overdue. This is for my folkers, um, check one, two. This is for my folkers never live like a hog, me and you. Toe to toe, I got love for the underdog. You like this song because it's relatable. It's you in a rhyme. We go to stores that only let us in two at a time. We live in places where it costs to get your check cash. Arguments about money usually drown out the tech blast. Work six days a week, can't sleep Saturdays though. Muscles trembling like a pager when the battery's low. And you still don't know where the years went. Although every single shift feel like a year spent. And you could write your resume, but it wouldn't even mention all the life lessons learned during six years of detention. 
and how you learned the police was just some handicappers on the ground next to broken glass and candy wrappers. So don't accept my collects on the phone. Just hit me back at the house so I know I ain't alone. And we could chop it up about this fucked up system. Homies that's been killed, how we always gonna miss them? It's almost impossible surviving on this fraction. Sip a 40 to the brain for the chemical reaction. You gotta hustle, cause they trying to push and shove you. I tear this motherfucker up, since I really love you. This is for my folkers who got bills overdue. This is for my folkers, um, check one, two. This is for my folkers, never live like a hog, me and you, toe to toe. I got love for the underdog.